There is no right answer. We are all products of our environment, and what feels soothing to me may be harmful to someone else. Instead, let us open our hearts to multiple paths. Let us allow ourselves to stumble on the path, and let us work towards welcoming our call-outs as reminders that we're still learning. This is a quote by Kitty Stryker, an anti-fascist writer, activist, and authority on developing consent culture in alternative communities. The topic of consent is a conversation, so it's not an absolute, and there's room for all of us to grow. I'm Daniel Akinolo de Sola, and today on Doubt of Living, we're talking about promoting consent culture. Consent culture, as a term, has been talked about specifically in relations to sex, but the conversation today is about the dynamic and accountability as a person and how we can operate with this in our lives in general. And consent, as a definition, is the compliance in or approval of what is done or proposed by another person. According to the Information Commissioner's Office, Consent means offering individuals real choice and control. Genuine consent should put individuals in charge, build trust and engagement, and enhance your reputation. That was in relation to companies and organizations because they are actually a big part of the conversation of consent as well. And a lot of us have some form of privilege, whether we are an organization or someone in authority, and this can get in the way of us being able to truly give consent to other people when we want something of them and a lot of this talk is going to be about how we recognize those things and the examples of them and there are legal definitions of consent but we don't have to just follow the legal definitions because as we know law is supposed to be a wide brush but it will never cover every situation so the best way we should be looking at consent is as an individual to an organization or an individual to individual that you as the person are the one that gets to make that choice. I've orchestrated this episode so that there aren't any triggering details about physical consent but I don't know everyone's experience so this may still be the case for some people so if you need to fast forward or stop or go towards the end then feel free to do so because this isn't meant to bring stress to people but to be a conversation of understanding and how we approach this topic. I'm going to keep this conversation in four different parts. The consent of information, consent between adults, consent in youth and then consent in language. Consent in information starts with basically the idea that you have online activities, you have things that you do digitally, you have things that you do, any sort of information, but this kind of information can be useful and so companies, organizations want to be able to take this and compile this. Consent and information is you understanding what you do with your information, who it goes to, and making sure that you're not 
contributing your information to something that can be harmful to you or other people. And the easiest way to deal with this as an organization, and I've done this from the side of organizations before, is to be clear on what you actually need and build a healthy ecosystem as a company. And this could mean that you're straight off about saying that advertisers can get this information, but it might be the case that this information helps you fund the site. So this person getting tracked in some medium way, maybe even a light way, is just them saying, hey, these are the type of people that use my site. Therefore, the advertisements that appeal to these kind of people will be on my site and my site gets to stay. Or it could just make you and your shopping journey easier and you say that actually a site that I go to often is a site that I would be fine with having my data there so when I'm on the site I can get information and ads that are relevant to me. Main thing is communication and that's going to be the theme about all of it is communication and the ability to understand the asymmetry of power and authority in an interaction physical between two adults that's the one that a lot of this literature is really about and it's something that is a lot to unravel but the main idea there is that people will have their traumas they'll have things they've recognized and not but people don't need to understand every aspect of what stops them from being part of this regular way of interaction to be able to consent and saying they don't want or they want a certain thing at the moment. And that's all that matters with all of this is what someone wants at the moment. And consent is a responsibility, but it's also about respect and accountability. And we really don't teach a large culture about respect when it comes to whether it's a woman, whether it comes to someone in a position that might be considered less power. What some of the research that I looked at into this highlighted was that on the surface, we do have a shared understanding of consent. And usually when you're thinking of a definition, you're thinking about yourself and what you understand about it to yourself. But usually the issue is that people don't understand it about how they do it to others. And what was shown in these heteronormative examples were that men tend to look at nonverbal cues. And there's many reasons for that, a lot having to do with the way we're taught that we should be pursuing people. And a lot of that has to do with being clever, with picking up on a subtle smile or the fact that they spent five minutes, not one minute with you, and you turn that into saying this person expects something. And to be honest, there are people that will vocally tell you when you haven't done that. And so what it does is it breeds a culture where the yes or no is too obvious. It's, it's too much work for someone to say yes or no. So then you just have to be the right person. And that can work for certain communities and certain people, but it does leave a lot of work for people that have recognized or unrecognized traumas that just want to be social, want to meet people, but don't want to do it on a way that's not their terms. And the thing about it is also the consent in familiarity is a big topic because there are many cultures that think 
once you're married or in a long-term relationship, you kind of give up the ability to have as much consent because that's part of the unwritten contract you had of being in a relationship with this person. And again, that's not the case because people are complex. Something can happen that a partner might not know of that would stop you from really feeling like you want to discern physical contact they want. And you should feel comfortable and should be allowed, regardless of gender, regardless of whatever, to be able to say to this person. But we, again, don't teach these things. And even in the workplace, by the time we're having talks about consent in the workplace, usually it's too late because people are adults and they've lived their teen years, their university years of operating a certain way and not getting negative feedback. Or even if they did, they survived. So why change now? With youth, it's a case of discipline and of play where we need to understand that we've got to teach them how to communicate consent on their part because we make laws that say that youth can't consent to certain activities and rightly so because they don't have the same ability to take the impact and truly understand it or it will be an impact that will affect them in ways they're not ready for and the whole idea is that we can incorporate this in the way that we interact with children by maybe asking them more questions or explaining more things or allowing them to say yes or no to things rather than saying you usually like this thing so I'll give it to you today or you usually like hugs so I'm going to give you a hug today because that doesn't allow them to introspect and become human beings that are developing the ability to communicate themselves. And people have issues with this when it comes to things like the talk about gender and everything like that, and they think kids shouldn't have the ability to talk about that about themselves. And regardless of the language, we understand a lot more about the world than the kids. But since they're five minutes old, they understand when they're tired or they're angry or they're hungry or whatever they don't know how to say it and they can't give you different forms of saying it but they know from that age so they also know about how they're feeling when they actually can communicate and it's better to allow them to explore that to make sure that you are not doing things that are going to get in the way of that or lead to some trauma in terms of the consent of language we have some good examples of that from marginalized communities for instance certain racial slurs other people think it's a violation of freedom of speech that you can't say these slurs or you can't use terms that are against certain people but you really have to think of the again consent being about respect and respect means that someone may have a trauma that they recognize don't recognize again same theme but a certain word might do something to them. Like in the African-American community, again, there's slurs that someone that's not in the community, even a black person that's not from America, might not have the same weight and history with. And in America, it would have been things that led to violence, led to not being able to access certain resources, things that other people couldn't really truly imagine. And so when you say some words, this is what it means to this person. They may not know you that well, and so you feeling comfortable with this means your history is going to be so different that they'll 
not sure really how to approach you. So the key thing is, yes, freedom of speech is good and all, but also read the room, because that's a way to just not be toxic. In my experience, I've worked with non-for-profits, dealing with healthy living and sexual health for youth. I've educated for a couple years. I've basically done a number of things, including working out with psychological safe spaces. So I'm really big on just the idea of people having agency and the fact that someone may not be able to articulate, but they do know how they're feeling. And I've been very cognizant about the authority and the power I have in a given situation. Sometimes even if it looks like it's to my detriment, I don't feel like it's to my detriment because I know that me opening this channel allows someone to be able to communicate the way they should be communicating, even if they're not used to it, and even if they make a judgment on me about it. And I think this is an important thing for everyone to sort of learn. And another thing is that, again, when it comes to the GDPR and the whole idea of data, I think it's another frontier where the communication is key. And I, in my consultancy, really highlight doing this with your customers, doing this with people that you want to form a relationship because the message across all of this is building good relationships involves respect and consent is always going to be a sign of respect and the intent of a good relationship. You may not get the individual actions right, but consent allows someone to feel comfortable to even tell you what you did right or wrong. Thinking this way and acting this way has allowed me to be more ego-free when I talk to people, and especially in the neurodiverse community. It allows a lot of people to be comfortable with their quirks and with being able to say, I don't feel comfortable in this position. The take-home on consent. To start, it's continuous conversation. That's just start in our formative years, because by the time you're 35, and you're in HR, you've already done a lot of damage. You're already associating the way you talk and act with your identity, and it's hard to put other people into perspective. Whereas when you're 10, it's easier, in the long, and it's better in the long run because you can start out with just the way that you're interacting with friends and names you're using, etc. And because it's about accountability and respect, it's something that is a continuous contract between people and we need to think about it from a cultural, economic, physical, psychological and political side. And the main thing is that there definitely should be spaces for people to individually talk, both as the people that have a habit of taking consent but also as the people that are usually marginalised. And the idea is that we can probably get better conversations about what that means as a whole society when people feel safe to unpackage things without fear of their masculinity or fear of a woman losing her job because she seems like she's just naysaying too much when she's really just talking about her own experiences. So I would highly recommend for people to think about how this affects their own lives and their own communities. That's episode five down. I think everyone that's still listening I hope this one has been another enjoyable and that you've gotten something out of this 
that can affect the way you basically understand your impacts on people and other people's impacts on you. If it leads you to reassessing a relationship, starting one conversation that you should be having with someone, or understanding situations you maybe don't want to be involved in as much anymore, then it's done what I expected. And this is the fifth episode. There's probably going to be another five and then I'll do interviews or I'll do some sort of break or something different so if you've got any ideas for that then just hit me up I'm anchorfm.com slash doubtive living and until then take care <laughs>